0: Today on The Novelizers, late-night talk show superstar Craig Ferguson, Independence Day actor David Pressman, plus Kenny Stevenson and intern Kevin Carter. Now here's your host,
1: Andy Richter.
2: Imagine this situation, you head over to your local bookstore to pick up a novel, something real smart that's going to impress strangers at a cafe, you know, like a Jane Austen or a Bronte sister. You pick out a good one, but then, on the cover, where there should be a classy Impressionist painting of an English garden, there's an ugly starburst screaming, Now a major motion picture, and a photo of some actor. Now instead of that stranger at Starbucks thinking you have a fine appreciation for classic literature, they're just going to think you have a thing for Karen Knightley in a corset. Sound familiar? Every year, Hollywood turns dozens of old books into movies. It's a lot like trying to dress up your grandpa in tight leather pants and a Bitcoin t-shirt. It doesn't make him look cool, it just makes you pathetic. Why? Because the book is always better than the movie. But that got me thinking. Why not take books that never were movies and reverse engineer them into brand new books? That's what The Novelizers is all about. We take classic films, then get professional writers to turn them into books, which, ipso-facto, are way better than the movies they were based on. Then we get amazing actors to narrate them. Kira Knightley, if you're listening, DM me. We would love to have you on the show. This season on the podcast, we're novelizing the alien invasion film Independence Day. And here's my intern, Kevin Carter, to tell us all about it. Kevin, I want to hear all about your summer break, but first, tell us about Independence Day.
3: Sure, Andy. Independence Day was a blockbuster disaster movie released in 1996. It was written by Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin and directed by Emmerich. Uh, Its star-studded cast included Will Smith, Bill Pullman, Jeff Goldblum, Mary McDonald, and Judd Hirsch. So, you want to hear about my summer now? Nope. Our first chapter
2: was novelized by actor and comedian Steve Agee from the hit movie Boy Band, now streaming on Tubi, and was narrated by David Pressman, who actually stars in the movie Independence Day. How the hell did we swing that? David Pressman, novelize us. Chapter 1, The Arrival.
0: Novelized by Steve Agee. Narrated by David Pressman. July 2nd, 1996. The American flag sits planted on the moon untouched for 27 years. Not far away is a plaque that reads, here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 AD. We came in peace for all mankind. Suddenly, old glory is darkened by a shadow. This is not a planetary eclipse. This is an alien spaceship slowly passing overhead, pointed straight at fucking Earth. Meanwhile, 200,000 miles away at SETI, search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute in New Mexico, Eli, a young technician, aimlessly hits golf balls into an automatic putting machine. It's the middle of the night and he's listening to something by R.E.M. because he's 25 years old and all his Sleater Kinney CDs were stolen out of his desk a month earlier. He's pretty sure it was Olivia, the new hire, but he can't prove it. Out of nowhere, an alarm starts flashing and beeping, breaking the mood in the room. Eli runs over to a machine that's emitting a strange noise. He grabs a phone and dials. At the other end of the building, in a small break room with a couple of bunk beds, Gil Gubbin, the shift supervisor, is sleeping. Probably a deep, dreamless sleep the kind of sleep that has earned from 70-plus-hour work weeks over a 30-year span that's seen two failed marriages, three ulcers, and a nervous breakdown. The phone rings and Gil tries to ignore it. Deep down inside, he's terrified. The last time his phone rang at this hour of the night was when his mom called to tell him that his sister died when she fell off the top deck of a cruise ship. It was eventually ruled an accidental death, but the family was pretty sure it was her husband that shoved her over the edge. Either way... It's safe to say cruises are fucking horrible and nobody should go on one. Gil reluctantly answers the phone. Yeah. Eli, on the other end of the line, excitedly says, You need to hear this, sir. He puts his phone up to the machine that's been making the strange noise. Shocked, Gil shoots straight up in his bed, hitting his head on the top bunk so hard he almost passes out. He hasn't experienced head trauma like this since being the victim of a home invasion robbery in 1987. He throws on a robe and heads for the computer room. By the time he gets there, the room is buzzing with activity. This better not be another Russian spy probe, he says. Gabriel, the office intern, assures him the boys at air traffic control have confirmed that the skies are clear. Eli is giddy. It's the real thing. A radio signal from another world. This might be the first step in my dream becoming a reality. I'm this much closer to someday having sex with an alien. Get on the horn with Space Command. They're going to want to hear about this. Says Gil as he trips over Eli's poorly placed automatic putting machine. What the fuck? Where'd I tell you idiots about playing golf in the control room? You see, Gil hated golf ever since he was a young boy. His father's love of the sport far outweighed his love for his son and the rest of the family, for that matter. In 1964, his father had a heart attack on the 15th hole while Gil was simultaneously graduating from high school. So, yeah, you could say that Gil hated golf. And cruises. And home invasion robberies. His attention is quickly diverted from the putting machine when another tech speaks up. Well, this can't be right. The sound isn't coming from deep space. It's close, like really close, said the tech over the click-clack of her Dell computer. In fact, it's coming from the moon. Later at Space Command, a division of the Pentagon, General Gray, a grizzled no-nonsense stick in the mud and Colonel Benton, his top advisor, are walking the halls. Does anyone else know about this? barks the general. Does anyone know about Space Command? No, sir. In fact, this is literally the first time we've had anything to do. No, you fucking idiot! Does anybody else know about the anomaly above the moon? Snaps the general. Yeah, only SETI, sir, but those fucking idiots smoke weed, so they'll probably have forgotten about this by tomorrow. They enter some sort of control room and bent at his hand at a printout with an infrared image on it. As he spreads the image out on the desk, he continues. Whatever this is, general... We estimate that it's about a fourth the size of the moon. General Gray is having trouble wrapping his head around this information. I don't understand. What is it? A meteor? An asteroid? Benton has to restrain himself. A meteor? Uh, no dog. This isn't a meteor or an asteroid. The general still doesn't get it. Well, how do you know it's not a meteor? Because, sir, it's slowing down, says Benton. The general grabs a phone and dials. Get me the Secretary of Defense! Meanwhile, in the master bedroom of the White House, President Whitmore sits in bed reading. Probably something important. Next to him, fast asleep, is his eight-year-old daughter, Patty. The phone rings. Uh, hello? Says Whitmore. On the other end of the line is his wife, Marilyn, calling from the West Coast. Hey, it's me. Uh, well, uh, you're up late. Uh, what time is it there? Asked the president. It's 2.45, and yes, I'm drunk. I've been in L.A. for two weeks, and you haven't once asked me why I'm here. The first lady is pissed off. Her marriage has been falling apart since her husband's inauguration. President Whitmore tries to stop a conversation before it happens. Uh, okay, I can't get into this with you right now. Uh, our daughter is sleeping right next to me. She misses you. Well, excuse me, that no, at least one person misses me. Let me talk to her. He hands the phone to the kid. Hey, wake up! It's your mom. The girl sits up, excited. Hi, Mommy. Daddy let me sleep in your room last night. I even got to watch Letterman. One of his guests jumped on the desk and showed him her boobs. The First Lady is not amused. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Drew Barrymore, total floozy. While his daughter and wife continue talking, the President walks out of the room past a television as a news anchor is coincidentally talking about how low the Commander-in-Chief's approval rating has fallen. In the hallway, he's joined by the White House communications director, Constance Spano. She's holding a copy of USA Today. There's concern in her voice. Well, you're pretty unpopular right now. Half the country thinks you're too old and too compromising. Whitmore is wounded. As they arrive in the dining room, he pours some coffee. (laughs) Too old? I'm 42! 42! I'm the fucking youngest president in US history. I, I, I don't get it. I'm a nice guy, right? So why does my wife and half the country hate my guts? Could things get any worse? The president's aide, Dennis De La Jones, enters. Sir, the Secretary of State is on the phone. To look at Dennis, one would assume he was a straight shooter with a young Republican written all over his face. A classic boy next door, Johnny USA, A real everyman. But the reality couldn't have been further from that. You see, Dennis was a Russian asset. He'd been turned by the Ruskies two years ago, and in one week's time, he was going to carry out his assignment. Dennis was going to assassinate President Whitmore. Unless something came up to derail that plan. Uh, thank you, Dennis. You know, I don't say this enough, but without you, I don't think I could do my job. I really value everything you do for me, and I see you as more than just my aid. You're more like the son I never had. Starting next week, I'm giving you a raise. The president picks up the phone. Yes? After a long pause. I'm sorry, what the fuck did you just say? 45 miles above the Earth, a US satellite crashes into the mysterious spacecraft.
2: Wow, what a fantastic start to our new season. But movies take a lot more than A-list celebrities like Will Smith and David Pressman to get made. They also take hundreds of professionals working tirelessly behind the scenes to pull off that movie magic. That's why in each episode of The Novelizers, we'll meet one of those backstage wizards who brought Independence Day to life. But since, you know, they're not A-list celebrities, I'm just gonna have my intern Kevin interview them.
3: Kevin, who did you
2: talk to today?
3: Thanks, Andy. Uh, Kevin Carter here, and I'm with Kenny Stevenson, who was the um-wrangler for Jeff Goldblum on the movie Independence Day. Kenny, how's it going today? Uh,
4: it's going great. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing all right. I could be a lot better. I mean, a lot oh. better. I mean, oh, whew, but right. I'm Sorry. doing all right. Okay. Um, so wanted to uh, just ask people, let, well, let people know up, up front, what is an um-wrangler?
4: So what the work that I do, I work in uh, what's called vocal disfluencies. And that is ums, ahs, things that we use to fill sentences. Uh, Oftentimes, it's usually, especially in the world of acting, it's uh, we're searching for a word. And a lot of actors will, as they're trying to remember their lines, might throw in an um or an ah. Some actors, as in the case with Jeff Goldblum, ums and ahs are a large part of kind of their, uh, standard operating. And if you let some of those actors keep all the ums and the ahs in, you know, time is money on a film set, especially mm-hmm. back on a movie like independence day, which was being shot on film and, you know, film costs money. And the more film that you're using costs more money. And, uh, you can't have somebody umming and awing too much, because it slows the whole process down. And so I'm there to kind of keep, we don't want to lose the ums and ahs because that's what makes Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum. Like, you know, if you take the ums away from Jeff Goldblum, he's just gold blue. So how, did, so how did it work? How did it
3: start uh, working with Jeff Goldblum? Like how did you get into a position where this is your job? This is what you do.
4: I got the call to work with Jeff back on Transylvania six, 5,000 uh, great shoot. Uh, you know, I was a big Ed Bigley junior fan and uh, you know, a young Gina Davis. They were dating, I believe at the time he had heard my reputation. They referred him to me and then we connected there. And then just right away, a, a great uh, rapport and uh, we've just I, I've been working with him ever since. Uh, and it's just uh, it's just been a it's been a wonderful, uh, glorious ride to be able to work with Mr. Goldblum or Jeff, as I call him.
3: When you're working with him on set, getting him prepared to do his lines and everything like that. Uh, is there any type of, I don't know, training involved that comes with, you know, Saying because I'm pretty sure it's not easy to not say ums when you're Jeff Goldblum. You know so, so is there any training that that goes, that gets involved with doing that?
4: When we first started working together uh, in Romania on the shoot of Transylvania 6-5000, I bring, I, I had done some research and learned that Jeff Goldblum was a big fan of the candies, uh, the Bitto Honeys. Mm. He's the only person. No, I've never, you know, it's one of those candies you get on Halloween and you're like, thanks person who gave me bido honeys. I'm going to go home and throw this in the garbage, but yeah,
3: that's, that's the yep. candy of somebody that doesn't love you.
4: Yes. Jeff Goldblum loves those. So mm. I went and like cut them into little bite-sized pieces and I had a little bag with me and, uh, and I had a little clicker and we would go through his lines and I, the first time through, I let him do, I let him say as many ums and ahs as he wants. To just get it all out of the system, and so he knows that like, okay, that's what that's what you want to do. Now let's talk about curbing this behavior a little bit. So then he starts, and then if he ums a little too much, I, I have a little clicker. I click three times, and then he does it. And if he does a little bit less, he gets a treat, and he gets three clicks. And then you keep doing treat, click, treat, click, and then after a while, you just do the clicks. So it, you know, it gets to the point where we're on set and. I just have to go click, 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 and he knows that that's me telling him, "Hey, bud, it's time to it's time to scale it back a little bit, okay? We're going a little too hard on the ums and ahs and the yas and you know uh, laughs. He likes to he likes to he likes to put laughs into lines that aren't necessarily funny." Exactly,
3: and and that and that's good to know for me. You know what I'm saying? Because I don't I don't know if I told you or not. You know what I'm saying? It's going around Hollywood a lot. That I'm writing a screenplay. You know, and oh, good um, for you! Yeah, and my, and my idea is to have Jeff Goldblum star in it. You know, if okay, not star yeah. in it, at least he's in it. You know,
4: and I, and I wrote a couple ums. If he if he gets a script and there's no ums, he, he needs you got to convince him a little bit that like why they want him for this, and you know, is he really a good fit for this part? It, it, but yeah. you put the ums in there, he's like, oh, this is a gold. This is this is Jeff Goldblum in this part. He that, speaks in the third person too, so he's often saying his first and last name.
3: That's when good. And, 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 and just to let you know, like I, I won't tell nobody else, you know what I'm saying? You can let him know that the title because I, I had him in mind. The title of the the screenplay right now is called Um's the Word. You know, so hopefully that Ooh. that doesn't throw him off. It's, it's, it's all about it's all about Jeff Goldblum.
4: I I mean, it sounds great.
3: How was it being around all those superstars? I mean, it was it was star studded. They may not have been stars back then, per se, but now, you know, it's star studded. So let, let's go with star studded then. Um, how was it like being around all those famous people?
4: Yeah, it it was. There were some days where uh, it was very intimidating. You know, we got Bill Pullman over here, who I had just loved in Spaceballs, and to say that I was a Fresh Prince of Bel Air fan would be an understatement. Like super fan. So it was, and I had all the DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince albums. So you know, I it was it. It took a lot of on my end to not just come at Will Smith and just start. You know, giving lyrics to his songs at all times, but you know, I'm a professional on set, so I was never going to do that. How was it when you received the call saying,
3: "Hey, Independence Day, this is the movie, we need you there"? How, how, how did that feel?
4: <sighs> I mean, it was it was a it was a big deal, you know, you know, to be able to like this was not only is this going to be. Uh, you know a big movie with uh, big stars in it but this is going to be they were targeting you know it's it's named Independence Day this was supposed to be a big summer blockbuster and you know you dream to be a, i keep talking about dreams there's so much of you know cuz hollywood is is so magical there's there you know it's a, it's it's a dream it's a goal when you work in this industry to to work on a big, you know, summer movie. Like so many people are going to see this movie and are going to see my work. You know, so many people are going to see how, even though it doesn't seem like Jeff Goldblum has curbed the amount of ums in his movie, in this movie, just to know that like, guys, if you, y'all, if you really saw how many ums he could have done in this scene, yeah, you would be you would be really you could take in the work that I did. But that's you know, it's a silent it's a thankless job that I do. I know, you You know, it, my job when I'm doing my job right, you can't tell that I'm doing it.
3: I want to thank you for that, sir.
4: Oh, this has just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
3: Not a problem. Uh, so thanks to Kenny here. I've been Kevin Carter. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast.
4: Great stuff. Our next
2: chapter was novelized by Liz Lent and narrated by Peabody Award-winning talk show host Craig Ferguson, who you can catch on the new podcast, Joy, a podcast from iHeart Podcasts. Did I mention it's a podcast? Anyway, Craig Ferguson, novelize us.
1: Chapter 2, in which Jeff Goldblum rides his bike like a boss And Earth is invaded by 15-mile-wide space cookies. Novelized by Liz Lent, narrated by Craig Ferguson. Just when you thought Jeff Goldblum would never, and indeed could never, top his head-turning role of buff, blue-furred alien in the 1988 cinematic masterpiece Earth Girls Are Easy, here he is again in yet another movie about aliens. Sadly for Jeff Goldblum, and I guess the audience, this movie has way fewer sex scenes with Gina Davis, but way more drunk scenes with Randy Quaid. This seems like a bad trade-off, but shh, don't tell Jeff. He doesn't know any of this yet. The poor guy just got here, and he's focused on playing chess in the park with his dad. That guy from the TV show Taxi, whose name I always forget, and who I literally only know as that guy from the TV show Taxi. None of you will remember this show because you are mere babies. Little tiny babies who know nothing about 1970s TV shows and how we had to watch them submerged in 12-inch deep shag carpet that was filled with cigarette butts, well-thumbed copies of Reader's Digest, and the dried tears of women striving for equal rights. Anyway, where were we? Ah, yes, in a park playing chess with Jeff Goldblum, whose name is David in this movie, by the way. And the guy from Taxi is playing his dad, a fellow named Julius, who's wearing a nice warm cardigan on a sweltering July morning in New York City. Julius is complaining vehemently to David about how long David is taking to make his move. Making a move may also be a euphemism, Because then Julius starts asking David why he's not dating anyone and why he's still wearing a wedding ring when he's been divorced for nearly four years. David keeps stalling on his chess move, no doubt wishing it was 2016 instead of 1996 and he could just Google how to play chess and stop hiding the fact that he barely knows what any of these pieces do. Why is there a horsey? Why are the pawns so self-destructive? Is the bishop really ordained? Trying to hide his chess ignorance, David reminds his father it's only been three years since his divorce. Big fucking whoop is what his dad does not say, but is clearly thinking. Instead, he tells David, it's not healthy. David moves a piece. He thinks maybe it's called the haberdasher. You know, the one that looks like a castle. Then he chastises his father for smoking before smoothly declaring checkmate with a confidence he does not feel. Indeed, a confidence he has not felt for many, many years, not since he banged Gina Davis. David gets up and gives his dad a kiss on the cheek as the older man tries to figure out how his son cheated and then David rides off on his bike towards his next adventure which probably isn't anything too exciting and most likely doesn't involve aliens or even Will Smith. Now we're in the middle of a very busy room with lots of desks and a ton of TV screens on the wall. The screens are all in varying stages of scrambly static. There's hubbub everywhere, everywhere I tell you. Phones are ringing, people are running around, it's chaos. There's a fellow on the phone who's been working so hard he hasn't even eaten half of the bagel sitting on the desk in front of him, poor thing. This guy, in a harried voice, tells the person on the phone that he's sorry her TV isn't working and that he too loves the X-Files. Woo! Shout out to Mulder and Scully, whose creator Chris Carter was even worse at telling alien stories than the makers of Independence Day. David rides in on his bike, which is confusing because is his office on the first floor? Or did he ride into the lobby of the building, then ride his bike into the elevator, then sit on the bike while inside the elevator, and then ride his bike off the elevator? Or was he an even bigger dick than that and walk his bike into the elevator, stand in the elevator pretending to be a normal human, and then get back on the bike and ride it ten feet into the office? Either way, I think we're getting to the heart of why David hasn't dated for four years. David's co-worker, played by Harvey Firestein, chases after him, asking why he didn't answer his calls. Elevator bike riding David tells him he ignored them and asks what all the hullabaloo is about anyway. Harvey tells him that all the stations have gone berserk with snow and static everywhere, which he could have seen on the giant wall of screens he just rolled past. Good lord, David. Harvey tells him they've been getting tons of calls, and they can't seem to find the problem. David, meanwhile, caring not a whit about his job, is instead outraged at the disorganized and frankly disrespectful state of the recycling bins. He's picking out plastics, tossing aside cans, just really digging right into that trash like a fevered raccoon. And again, we're getting a lot of clues regarding David's woeful dating status right here. With the plastics, cans and papers finally nestled in their respective bins, David finally cares enough about his job to ask Harvey if he's tried switching transponder channels. Harvey huffs at him. Would I be this upset if it was something simple? David asks about switching to another satellite. Harvey says portentously, It's almost as if they weren't there. What? No way. Harvey, what are you saying? David picks up a piece of paper, frowns at it, and declares, It's impossible. Oh, David, in Independence Day, anything is possible. Because of July 4th, and because of America. Amen. Another foreshadow comes barreling onto the screen, as some kid who's totally not related to David, and frankly appears to be in a whole other part of the country, pounds on his little tabletop TV, trying to watch the classic alien invasion film... The day the earth stood still, the kid, who we'll just call poor man's Joseph Gordon Levitt, announces to no one in particular, the signal's all screwed up. His older brother, the poor man's Keanu Reeves, tells him to knock it off before he breaks the TV. Their sister is also there, but is unconcerned because she is applying makeup. She's doing that because it's 1996 and she's a teenage girl. And that's really all the effort these writers were going to put into her character anyway. Suddenly a pickup truck comes flying down the road and the driver, clearly auditioning for a totally different film, does an awesome Fast and Furious style slide into the driveway. Poor Mansciano, okay, fine, his name is Miguel, steps out and says, hey, to the angry driver. Angry driver shakes a whole bunch of dead carrots in Miguel's face which I guess is how farmers communicate, and tells him that if his father's not in the air in 20 minutes, he's going to fire him. And frankly, he should fire him, because we're about to find out that Miguel's father is Randy Quaid, subject of Shakespeare's most famous rhyming couplet. When casting agents a train wreck need, they shalt call the Quaid to do the deed. But first, Miguel is riding his motorcycle down the dusty road in search of his dad, who we'll call... Russell, because that's his name or something. Over Miguel's head, there's a biplane vrooming along, almost hitting a bunch of trees. Hundreds of gallons of toxic chemicals erupt from the plane's tummy, much as they do from Russell's each day. Russell and gravity land the plane. Miguel pulls up on his bike as Russell drunkenly falls out of the plane. Miguel calls Russell an idiot, rightfully, and says Lucas's field is on the other side of town. Are you sure? Russell asks, taking another drink. This seems like very unsafe behavior, and frankly, I would not let this guy drive a fighter jet up the ass end of an alien spaceship. I'm just saying, in case it might come up at uh, some point in the future, maybe. Speaking of spaceships, look, there's one now, and it's coughing up a whole bunch of cool mini spaceships, all tumbling out into space toward a cute little planet I like to call Sally. It's also called Earth, but it looks like a sally to me, so back off, Mr. Astrologer, what do you know? Now we're in the White House, headed towards the Oval Office, which many of you might not know is actually shaped like a bunt cake, and was designed by architect Arnold Bunt, who was also a butcher, a baker, and a big fan of riding horses backwards. A brunette lady, who I think is the president's communications officer, or paintball partner, or plays some other important role in the administration, is telling her colleagues that the White House's official position on all this mayhem is that they have no position at all. In the Oval Office, some dude says, Our satellites are mostly unreliable right now. Isn't it possible this thing could just pass us by? (laughs) No, Glenn. There wouldn't be much of a movie then, would there? Jesus, think before you talk. Also, his name probably isn't Glenn, but I don't think he's going to be around long enough for us to care. Another middle-aged white dude, played by an actor who has been playing villains since I was six years old watching Guiding Light and getting a very weird education in romance, tells Glenn to shut the hell up. Except he uses the words, What if it doesn't pass us by? Why don't we just target some ICBMs and blow it out of the sky? Which is exactly the same solution he came up with on Guiding Light when Quinton McCord was cheating on his long lost wife with an ingenue housekeeper named Nola. The ICBMs were an overreaction then, and they're an overreaction now, dammit. An army guy throws a little cold water logic on evil guy's suggestion, and notes that they'll be turning one giant falling object into a whole bunch of them. Technically, General, the object is flying, not falling. But you just saved us from nuclear annihilation, so I will concede the point the president, hey look, he's here too, says, we don't know enough about what we're dealing with to make any intelligent judgments. He really should just ask his wife, who's going to be blowing up Cylons with a Lady Macbeth-style fervor in a few years. But whatever. Brunette Communications Lady says the press is making up their own stories and basically tells them they need to come up with a plan before USA Today does it for them, which would be kind of cool because... You know the plan would be colourful and include lots of pie charts. That's an old person's newspaper reference, by the way. Still fresh as an unopened Twinkie. The president, ignoring women entirely, muses that they may need to upgrade to DEFCON 3, which was my absolute favourite of the CON comedy jams. Evil politician guy practically wets himself with glee and tells the room to contact NORAD and tell them... They've upgraded to DEFCON 3. And I just want to point out that evil politician guy is acting like that one guy in every single office who just takes someone else's idea in a meeting and says it louder and then everyone goes, great idea! And it takes every ounce of self-control you have not to shiv him with a goddamn spork at the next company picnic. That guy is the worst. The worst. See, I said it louder to mock him. Smart army guy knows what I'm talking about because he's rolling his eyes right now and saying,
4: That's not
1: what the president said. All the boys in the room start arguing, and one guy says, rather presciently, that more than 50% of the armed forces are out on leave for the holiday, which seems like bad planning. Shouldn't there be a calendar and everyone has to coordinate and maybe some people get to go to the cookout, but others have to guard the country from aliens? I think Eisenhower had a calendar, and that's how they made sure everyone was around for D-Day, which otherwise was going to be a three-day weekend for a lot of folks. Anyway, two new army guys march into the room and declare that the giant object, let's just call it a spaceship, shall we? I mean, who are we even kidding at this point? It's not a giant, buttery, delicious space cookie, which would be fantastic. No. It's just a dumb spaceship and it's parked itself in a stationary orbit and it's barfing up 15 mile wide pieces of itself. It's so disappointing. Evil politician guy asks where they are headed. Army guy, really intent on killing the vibe in the room, announces that they should be entering Sally's atmosphere within the next 25 minutes. Roar Roar! One of these mini spaceships is making itself noticed in the northern deserts of Iraq where the sky is turning gold and pink and red, and it's really like a cross between an Elton John concert and any random nightmare episode of HR Puffin Stuff. People are running, which seems like a pretty fair response as the spaceship emerges from the clouds. Inside a battleship, some Navy guys are fretting over a total radar blackout over a 13 kilometer area, but note that the infrared is working. Well, maybe you guys should have looked at that first because there's a huge fucking red blob pulsating on that totally functional screen. Jeez, there is much more hubbub now in the Oval Office. Another military guy tells the president they now have two confirmed sightings and someone else chirps up to say that one has been spotted off the coast of California, waking up Will Smith. As people with access to top tier intelligence and information gathering tend to do, the group turns on the TV for a special report. There are some extraordinary events going on. The B.G.s are getting back together. A cow was born with two heads, one at the front and one at the back end. Bobcat Goldthwait swallowed a lozenge and said, Oh, yes! The world has erupted into mass hysteria because mysterious objects, for fuck's sake, they're spaceships already, are coming out of the sky. And these unexplained phenomena, which I guess is what we're calling spaceships these days, are headed straight for Moscow.
2: Thank you, Craig. I still maintain that all Scottish people are just putting on that accent to sound cool. Well, that's all the novelizing we have time for today. Kevin, land this spaceship.
3: Thanks, Andy. And thanks to this week's guest contributors, Steve Ag, David Pressman, Kenny Stevenson, Liz Lent, and Craig Ferguson. More info about all of our guests can be found in the show description. The Novelizers was created by Steven Levinson, produced by Steven, Chris Karwalski, Rob Kudner, and Suchetis Bokil. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris. Improv booking by Christine Bullen. Music by Cole Emoff. Art direction by Crystal Dennis and illustrations by Barry Crane. Intro narration by Robin Reed. Interviews by me, Kevin Carter. Special thanks to Luke Dennis and Peter Hayes at Soul Public Radio in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Check out thenovelizers.com for more info about the show, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and occasionally TikTok. If you enjoy The Novelizers, please support us on Patreon or email thenovelizers at gmail.com to sponsor an episode. Till next time, I'm Kevin Carter, Novelizers out.